0: to, let's hop right into some of our topics on today. We have seen that the uh, Kentucky bank shooter, more information has come out on him. I did a post a few minutes ago and um, people keep asking the question about why can't we seem to, you know, put a stop to some of this terrorism that's been happening. I call it domestic terrorism. There's really no way around it. Um, what is really happening with this. And today's article or today's promotion by the Daily Mail is a prime example of why we can't seem to slow this train down. So not just not having particular laws and restrictions in place, right? It's not just about that. It is about how these shootings how this terrorism is being presented through media. Ask yourself the question, why are people romanticizing? Why is the media romanticizing terrorism? Why are they romanticizing terrorism? One more time. (laughs) Why are we romanticizing terrorists? Why are we romanticizing people Who are decimating families. I don't want to hear. About no accomplishments. From somebody who has taken the lives of five people. These people's blood. Is still on the ground. Their bodies. Are not even in the grave. And you're coming out with articles. About the terrorists, and how good of a person they were. Newsflash, if they were good, we wouldn't have five souls taken from their families. What are we doing? What are we doing? America, Britain, UK. If I was a part of one of those families whose family members was just taken from me, and I look up and I see the Daily Mail talking about how wonderful this person who just took my family member is away from me, there would be an automatic lawsuit. (laughs) Full stop. Full stop. Totally disrespectful. Totally shameful behavior of the Daily Mail putting out this article as if They are talking about or giving the resume of a humanitarian. Listen, don't do that. That's totally disrespectful to the families of those who are enduring pain, disbelief, shock, and horror. Totally disrespectful, right? So we have to hold media accountable, right? Mainstream media in particular. Hold these people accountable for how they are putting out these messages. Why are we, again, why are we romanticizing something that we say is horrific and we want to stop? This is not rocket science. Why are you romanticizing something that you say is horrific And you want to put a stop to it. We don't need anybody else trying to be a copycat because they want some kind of accolade for themselves. And the way that that was put out was absolutely unnecessary. These people have not even had time to grieve. And you're putting this out. Irresponsible. I'm sorry, that's irresponsible reporting done by the Daily Mail. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, you can scroll down my timeline and you'll see what was put out by the Daily Mail as breaking news. We're making something seem heroic when it's actually terroristic. That is a problem in and of itself. Black Women's History Month. Shout out. Again, this is something that's on my page. You can scroll and read a little bit more about it. Shout out to Lavinia Perkins, who in 1980 convinced the company Mattel to let her create the first black Barbie. Now, if you grew up like me, I'm a 70s baby. I'm Gen X, I believe. <laughs> These days, some of us are called Yennios, Gen X. I don't know. They got a name for everything, right? But when in the 1970s, the late 1970s, there were no black Barbies. I wanted a Barbie doll. My mother said, you're not getting a Barbie doll until they make a black one. Now, did I understand that? absolutely not. (laughs) I absolutely did not understand that comment. But as they say, you'll understand it better by and by. My mother was taking a stand for representation. And I'm very thankful that I did not grow up with some of the um, identity crises that was displayed in, if you've ever heard of it, the doll test. I didn't grow up with those identity crises. I didn't point to something and say that because it looks like me, it is ugly or it is stupid or it is unattractive. I didn't grow up with that because I had a mother (laughs) who said, we're not getting you something that doesn't look like you. That is not going to be the first thing that you put in front of you as a standard of beauty. I don't, I didn't realize how powerful that was when I was a child, but I realize it now. So shout out to Lavinia Perkins, who again in 1980 convinced the Mattel toy company to allow her to create the first black Barbie. It was created in 1980. And I remember when it was created because it was my third birthday party. <laughs> and I finally got the a Barbie doll that I had been asking my mother to get me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was three years old when the first black Barbie came out. And so that's a little bit of black women's history right here in the United States. So again... Kudos to Lavinia Perkins, who did what many black women do, which was advocate for herself. She had the goods. She had the ability. She had the skills. She had the talent. But she also had to advocate for herself and say, listen, I got the goods. I can do this. Hire me <laughs> and I will get it done. And that's exactly what she did. And the rest, as they say, is history. History. Now, let me talk about something that just happened about 30, 40 minutes ago on my page. I put up a clip of the PBS series called The Long Song. It is a clip. Um, the Long Song is sort of detailing um, the history of enslavement Um in the United States, and I believe in some other parts. So it was a movie, it was a film series clip, right? Most of us understand copyright. We understand the, the fair use. Yes, their advocacy has made a difference. Welcome, uh, Anthony Crossen. And so I put up this clip just a few minutes ago, and the clip was about enslavement and some of the horrific things that happen in terms of enslavement, right? So in that clip, it kind of showed how black people during the time of shadow enslavement, how they were dehumanized. Um, it showed during the time of enslavement, how they were treated. It showed during the time of enslavement how the mother was really subject. It was a very, very detailed layout, an example of what it meant to be shadow, what it meant to be human property, what it meant to be capital. Capital didn't have a voice property didn't have a voice and what it meant to breed more children into a system of perpetual enslavement and then be treated as if you don't have feelings for the children that you brought into perpetual enslavement. And it really highlighted and demonstrated what psychologists sometimes call uninvolved parenting or detached parenting. So I was drawing a parallel between what happened to black women in enslavement and this idea or this notion of detached parenting, which a lot of times if you hear black adults talk about their children sometimes or even talk about their own um, childhood and how they were raised, a lot of black people, you'll hear them say things like, well, when when I got to be 18, my parents said, you got a few choices. You're going to go to college or you're going to go to the military, but you're not going to stay in this house. You're going to get out of here at 18. Right? So there's this notion of um, you're 18, you're grown enough. It's time for you to move out. It's time for you to let go. It's time for you to get going. This is very common in Black culture and Black community. That your child turns 18, they're grown. I wash my hands of it. I'm done raising them. When most people understand that as long as you're a parent, you're really parenting for life. Your roles per se may change from, direct oversight to more of an elder or, you know, an elder guidance, counsel, advice, right? But no, (laughs) in a lot of Black communities, it's you're 18, you're getting out of my house, you're going to find something else to do. You can't stay here, okay? Or there's this notion of, I am proud of you but I'm not necessarily going to say how proud of you I am. Or I love you and I show that love by providing the basic necessities, but I don't necessarily have to tell you I love you. There are a lot of uh, people in our community that say, hey, I, I didn't grow up hearing that kind of language. I didn't grow up with the good job, son, good job, daughter, the pat on the back. Definitely I would say this next crop of parents in this coming generations, millennials especially, have done a better job with all of that. But I'm looking generation X back. These were not common everyday givens. Okay. So I was drawing a parallel with this video and showing how did we get to the, how did we get here? And it was very evident because you could see. In this video clip that the, yes, you could see in the video clip that the mother was kind of very, a little on the stoic side. She was kind of holding back how much she actually cared about her child. She was trying to really like draw attention away from her child. But in the end, When that master decided to snatch that child up and give it to his sister, it to his sister, then you start to see her distress because she said she's too young to be given away. And so when we look at what has happened to Black people here in the United States, and when we look at a very white system of psychology and theory and terminology. Yes, I do (laughs) side-eye some of these theoretical terms for what is happening with parents, especially black parents, because there seems to be a lack of acknowledgement of who created these things in the first place. Who created these patterns of what we call dysfunctional parenthood in the first place. So anyway, as I was making that analysis, (laughs) CBS ran over here so quick to my video. (laughs) At first, Facebook alerted me that they removed the video. Now, I don't know if the video is still up. If you scroll down my timeline you might actually see the video. Go watch the video. I do know that they have pressed it down in the algorithm because I did contest them taking it down completely. So I did file a fair use claim that I am using this for educational purposes only and that I am not definitely not getting paid by Facebook. Nothing. Okay. From the video. Um, But So it's probably down on my timeline. They're not going to push it up into the algorithm because of what that video shows, but it is very telling. So please go watch the video if you have not seen it. But I thought it was hilarious. I had to laugh to myself. I said, now of all the things that people would be rushing to go come pull down off of Facebook, they're not rushing to pull down all these porn videos that are out here on Facebook that... Unfortunately, I get tagged in all the time. They don't rush to take down whole porn hub groups on Facebook with butt naked people on video. No, they don't do that. They don't rush to untag me in all of the foolishness that I get tagged in that I didn't ask to be tagged in. No. They were so quick to come over here and flag historical record. <laughs> in the form of PBS's series. I said, isn't this a hot mess? So Facebook is on the anti-CRT train too. Just under the guise of, oh, we had to remove this very quickly. No, you didn't want us to make the connection, but we made the connection, okay? So go and look at the video. Thank you, Anthony, for letting me know it's still up. Yes. She had the conflict of short game versus long game. Fight and lose life for the now or endure loss for the benefit of family beyond simply self-preservation. And I can't tell you how many black families generationally are still moving in that generational trauma. And sometimes people don't even realize that that's what they're doing. Sometimes you don't realize you've got this standoffish, uninvolved, detachment style of parenting that comes from somewhere. I can't get too attached to my child because they could be snatched up at any minute. Guess what? Police brutality does the same thing. It's hard for me to get attached to my child because when I send them out of my home, I don't know if they're going to come back in one piece or back at all. So it becomes inbred this this notion of I can't treat my child too precious. I can't deal with my child too tenderly. I've got to quote-unquote toughen them up for the real world rather than saying the real world has to change because I shouldn't have to prepare my child for the possibility of a knee on their neck. I shouldn't have to do that. Right? I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to say that it's okay for a black coach to be in a locker room talking to black boys or black young men in such a harsh manner that we as parents or we as adults in their life turn around and say, well, that was necessary. It was necessary for him to talk to them like that. Really? Really, because I don't think you would be saying the same thing if that was a whole locker room full of white sons. I think he'd be on somebody's news channel explaining why he was using profanity and vulgarities to talk to their sons. Because we don't put that onus that our sons are precious too. We don't put that out there. We say they deserve to be talked to in this manner because that's the only way they're going to listen. That's what we say. I've heard it. I've seen it. People have actually come at me saying, well, you must not work with kids because this is what it is out here. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but sorry to bust your bubble there. But I've been working with children for 23 years. From all walks of life, neurodivergent, from governors and representative kids, <laughs> all the way down to little pookie in the hood. I've taught them all on the spectrum. And guess what? Not one time have I ever had to use language that was vulgar or profane to get their attention. Or for them to take me seriously. Not once have I had to cuss at them, yell at them, scream at them, or get in their face like they're hard of hearing. So we have to ask ourselves, where does that come from? Because it don't come from us. It's learned behavior. And if you're a parent, you can unlearn it. Is really that simple. And when you are a parent and you unlearn those behaviors, then guess what? When you see other people enacting those behaviors on your child, you're going to think twice. Because you're going to recognize wait a minute, my child can hear, <laughs> they can hear, they can understand. I was explaining to someone, again, this is another video on my page, little girl, probably maybe three, four, maybe, and she's explaining how she doesn't have to listen to certain things because people don't listen to her when she's talking, right? And one of my commentators said, oh, well, you know, she's probably repeating what she's heard somewhere. Okay, let's go with that. Even if she is repeating what she's heard somewhere, she's repeating it in context, which means she understands exactly what that conversation was about. It was about, you want me to listen to you, but when I'm talking, you don't listen to me. And you know where that comes from? It comes from something called childism. Childism is when we don't treat children like people, like fully grown human beings. I didn't say fully grown in their decision making or their mindset, but we don't treat them like full people who have rights to, who have emotions to. And when you don't treat children like little people who will grow up to be big people, as Tupac said, the hate you give little infants F's everybody over. Thug life, right? So this whole notion of I can't treat my child as the precious gift that they are to me that comes from somewhere it's not our culture it's not our culture it has been beaten into us and we have ancestral memory of what was beaten into our ancestors and passed down by them Okay, it's not our culture. And I need us to stop claiming stuff as our culture when it is the outworkings of trauma. (laughs) It's the outworking of trauma. So once we start separating what is trauma from what is true, we can get somewhere. I can say this is this is coming to my culture. Through the means of trauma. It's not true about who we are as a people, but it has entered into our lineage because of the trauma and abuse and things that we have endured as a people. Good news now, good news. Tennessee Representative Justin, one of the Tennessee representatives, has been reinstated. That is good news. But they must keep going, right? They must keep going until the other representative is reinstated and they must continue to keep going until those who pulled the foolishness and the shenanigans are voted out. Now, one thing I do want to say is shout out to Generation Z because they are not with the mess. (laughs) They are not with the foolishness. Ooh, I got to give it to Generation Z. They are standing up. And again, I know that there is a level of propaganda out here that wants to convince us that people are not really listening, that people are not really taking note, that people are just going to stand back and let this stuff continue to happen. But I'm here to tell you that Gen Z is made from something different, I'm telling you. They are made from something different, and I am here for it. (laughs) So in any way I can help Gen Gen Z out, I am here for it. I'm here to advocate. I'm here to offer information. I'm here to offer resources. Um, I'm here to help point people in the right direction. That is a part of what I can do in terms of helping to advocate um I have been in the halls of Congress here in the DC region and um my introduction to the DC area I was um in a meeting and I was moving some money I was in an investment uh meeting and the gentleman asked me he said you know how long have you been in this region and I said oh we just got here and this was around 2011. And you know what he said to me? <laughs> he said, welcome to the seat of Satan. I was like, "Um, that's not a welcome, sir. Like, what? <laughs> welcome to the seat of Satan? That's not how you welcome somebody to a region. But you know what? My melanated challenge uh, brethren, He did not lie. That's one thing I can say. He didn't lie. He told the truth. So there is a way that you need to navigate. And there is a way that you must navigate when you live in this region. And I often say to people, don't even think about coming to move here if you are not called to this region. (laughs) Because megalomania is really strong here. Um, you're talking about being in the seat of governmental espionage, all of that, NSA, all of that stuff. And people be out here having whole companies that don't even exist. (laughs) I mean, some of these people I have met have had one, two, three, four, five and 10 lives. Okay. There are layers to deceptive people in this region. And if you are not prepared for that, um, it can, it can, it can be a lot. It can be a lot. I'm gonna just say that. It can be a lot. Thank you all for uh watching and tuning in. I want to go now to a couple of books. As you know, if you've been with us before, you know we do read aloud. I call it Reading Rainbow for Adults. And I want to introduce you to a couple of books today one, I I don't know how I found this book. I think it was, okay, yeah, I, I remember now. I was at my local library looking in their new release section and I came upon this book in the drawing animation section. I don't know why it was there, but it's called Living While Black Portraits of Everyday Resistance by, by Awan a Mance. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he's literally um, talking about 40 different ways of resistance, living while black. So I want to touch on a couple of them. Uh, uh, Juan Mance created this book, he said, during the pandemic. It was published on last year. He has been working on this, as he said, since COVID, and he's connected his artwork to different things around being Black in America. And I found this to be very interesting because all of these are tied to encounters that Black people have had in this country, and it's simply become a wild Black synonyms uh synonyms so this first one he has here is aging while black and there's his graphic artwork aging while black he says a reference to any act of police violence against medically vulnerable people chronically ill people or disabled black people over the age of 60 it's called aging while black this is a phrase applied to encounters in which police officers display an open disregard for the dignity, health, or safety of Black elders. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, most of my elders have transitioned out of this life. They are now my ancestors. But a couple of things come to mind when I think about aging while Black. I can't remember the name of the woman, but there was an a older woman that you know police had entered her apartment i believe and she was completely undressed and i think they took her out of her house down to the to the station in this whole in uh, being undressed and in disarray that would fall under aging while black i know there are some other instances but that's kind of one of the first ones that's um stands out to me um But anybody who has experienced police violence when they were medically vulnerable, um, who was another one? And this is, like like he said, it's particularly dealing with people over the age of 60. So there has been other people who are younger who have dealt with some of this, but it would not necessarily fall under Aging While Black. Now, Attitude While Black. Here is his illustration. I love the fact that he has this fully illustrated. This is something that anybody can read down to your middle schooler. So if you are looking for a way to introduce the topic of police brutality and to introduce this topic to younger people, check it out. Attitude While Black. A term that describes the arrest or detainment of a black individual or group for failing to demonstrate a submissive response or a reverential response to a law enforcement officer. A cynical reference to the criminalization of black dignity, black audacity, skepticism, or resistance. It is not a crime to be skeptical of why you have been pulled over if you're ever pulled over it's not. I remember the very first time that I was pulled over. um, My family taught me, and I don't know if this is true for other people, but my family taught me that if you are ever pulled over or if you are ever, um, you know, the police officer's lights come on, try to get to a spot that is clearly lit, number one. These days, there's an app that you can actually activate on your phone that will start recording your encounter for you and save it so it can't be deleted. Um, and then if you have to stop, right, you are going to stop. There are some places, some laws like the state of Florida that do not allow you to keep going once the police kind of signal you. But there are other places where you know you can drive a little bit further and then stop as long as you're not like increasing in speed, you know, there's no attempt to evade the police officer and all of that. I'm sure somebody who is legal is going to come drop some links and stuff into the chat, right? So I was taught try to find a place to stop that is well lit, preferably in the eye of drivers, okay, people who are passing by, or try to if not that try to stop at a place that has cameras outside of the officers dash um dash cam and his body cam so stopping at a place like you know a restaurant parking lot um a gas station gas stations tend to have cameras that point to you know your your um fill up area So that's what I did. (laughs) Um, I saw the lights. It was like 6 o'clock in the morning. I saw the lights behind me. I was like, if anybody knows me, I'm like the slowest driver in the world. So I wasn't speeding. And I was like, why is this person? I was scratching my head like, why is this person pulling me over? So I drove a little further. And I saw Dunkin' Donuts and I pulled into the Dunkin' Donuts and I could see that there was a camera right on the outside that was looking at my car while I um, stopped. Officer pulls up, he jumps out of his car and he's rushing to my window and he's yelling at me. Why didn't you stop when you saw my lights? Come on, um, sir. I just, I pulled over to a well-lit place. That's all I said. What are you doing out this time of morning? Um, I'm a school teacher. <laughs> I'm a school teacher on my way to school to see about my students and I'm planning a lesson and I'm about to be late. Before that lesson, planning. And immediately, his entire demeanor changed. Well, I just want you to know that you need to slow down. I'm like, sir. I'm thinking to myself, I didn't respond. I had my hands where he could see them. And I'm thinking to myself, it is 620 in the morning. There is no one on the road except moi and you. (laughs) I think he felt a little ashamed. I think it was the fact that I was a school teacher, which doesn't always work out, by the way, um, because some people can't stand school teachers and they have trauma around school teachers. So it could have went the other way. So he said, well, this is a warning. I want you to slow down and he uttered some more curse words and then he turned around got back in his vehicle and took off well that little short stop cost me you know being on time and I was a little frazzled when I got to my school and I was a little shaken up because I'm like did he not do what he wanted to do because there were cameras Because back then, when this happened, there weren't body cameras. And I think the only thing that really saved me from from a worse encounter was the fact that I was parked in a well-lit spot with cameras. So, I didn't get an attitude with him, but he came to my window with an attitude. Now, I could have fed it. I could have. I could have said, you know... Listen, I'm not going, I wasn't going fast. As a matter of fact, I was driving like a little under the speed limit, if anything. But it really would have been my word against his had I not stopped in a place that was well lit with a camera. So again, when we talk about attitude while black, I don't think people understand the ways in which black people have to adjust our own natural inclination to want to defend ourselves. Um I don't think people take that into consideration when these kinds of encounters happen. They just think, Hey, just do what they, just do what they tell you and you know, you'll make it home, which is true, but I shouldn't have to cower or feel fearful when I'm encountering somebody who is paid really to serve the public. Like my tax dollars are included in that too. So something to consider. This one has been one uh, really recently. I think more, unfortunately, of this has been happening. Banking while black. And there is the artist illustration. Banking while black. A reference to black banking customers' experience of refusal of service, denial of access to funds, or excessive requests for identification, a term applied to black banking customers' subjection to false accusations of fraud by bank tellers, managers, or other employees a reference to the arrest and detainment of black banking customers for attempting to complete lawful financial transactions. Now, who was it recently? Well known. I think it was Ryan Kugler, right? Had an issue with banking while black. Somebody confirm that for me, if you can. Um, I have no problem with people asking me for identification when I'm inside of a bank. I have a problem with you not asking everybody else before me (laughs) and then getting to me and demanding identification while I'm at the bank. See how that works? If you're going to ask me to pull out identification Please ask the other 10 people that were also in front of me for their identification. When I see that you didn't do that, then I know this is not about you needing my identification. It's not. (laughs) And then that's what sets black people to have an attitude with you. Because it's like, okay, you didn't ask any of these people for their identification. You served them just fine. But now I'm here, and you want to see in a, a form of ID. I'm gonna stop there, cause <laughs> it's sad to say, but I probably almost have I have I probably almost have an example of every single one of these, or just about. Because the next one is barbecuing while black. barbecuing while black so we'll pick up with that next time the last book i want to share with you today as i said we were going to start looking at and that is black women's wellness it is once again black women's history month if you are interested in a book that has some comprehensive things concerning Black women and their health and wellness. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy. So, let's see what we are going to dive into today. Ooh, we societal stress in Black women's health, the rejection connection. This is um, a theory, this is a setup that has been created by Dr. Melanie Melody excuse me, T. McLeod. So let's jump in and let's see if we can get to her chart here and I will show it to you. As a physician, she says, and surgeon specializing in obstetrics and gynecology, I have counseled, examined, treated, and operated on thousands of women of many hues. Black, white, Hispanic, South Asian, Indian, and other ethnicities in between. As a result of my experience, I can say with reasonable certainty that normal female or normal human females are the same anatomically, structurally, and physiologically, regardless of their race. Their hair may be a different texture and their skin a different tone, but their inner workings are the same when normal. So if the structure and function are the same, why are the healthcare outcomes terribly different in many cases? Why do black women still carry a poorer prognosis and higher mortality rate for many conditions that others are readily cured of in significant numbers? When I attend conferences addressing women and minority women's health or listen to leading experts in public health policy, many mention the same factors as reasons why black people lag behind others in successful healthcare outcomes. Let me put a little asterisk there because I tried to avoid using the word minority. If you look up the word minority, it actually means inferior or insubordination to another group of people. So we are technically not the minority. We are actually the global majority. So I may um, as I'm reading, I may substitute that in here. Many mention genetic factors. True, we are born with certain genes. And while sometimes they are a blessing, other times they are perhaps more of a burden that we must accommodate to live our best life amidst the biological hand we were dealt. Many times the go-to explanation for ethnic health disparities is, quote, blacks lack access to medical services or, quote, many lack medical insurance. I agree, those are important and still applicable factors, but those same studies fail to report that even black women with access to medical care and services, i.e. Serena, i.e. Beyonce, i.e. Rihanna, you get the point, and those with insurance in higher education often suffer the same medical fate as those without said benefits. So what's the issue that traverses all economic and educational lines? I suggest it is the psychosocial stressors, the microaggressions that bear a great and most enduring burden and responsibility for the ongoing, unchanging state of Black women's health. Not everything bad in the Black community is the government or someone else's fault. To bring forth a change in the history of black women's health there are three main things black women can do for themselves first we can realign some of our priorities in the allocation of some of our expendable funds second we can shift from a superwoman mentality caring for everyone else to one that affords us the obligation and commitment to care for ourselves one of the things That one of my therapists said to me that has helped me to revolutionize my 2023 is it is time to take off the cape and exchange it for a robe and a crown. And when they said robe, they're not talking about, you know, the queenly robe, because if you understand anything about royalty, when you put that robe on, you're still operating in a sense of authority and decision making and ruling and all of that. No. Give me a bathrobe. (laughs) Hashtag soft like me, please. Okay. So there is a time and a place for everything, but we do need to have a further commitment to care for ourselves. And third, we black women must release historic barriers, distrust of doctors. That means I got to first find a doctor I can trust. I'm in the midst of changing some doctors right now. Because they have proven to be untrustworthy. I could not trust you during the C-19. I could not trust them. I could not trust them. I trusted what my divine creator told me to stay alive. And thankfully, I'm still alive. Because I trusted him. Because they were not trustworthy. And they had to come back and apologize. And say, we should have listened to you. Hashtag believe black women hashtag believe black women the first time (laughs) believe black women okay had i listened to them i'd be in a different position but thankfully i'm not so yes it is a historic barrier to distrust doctors but it's not like they have not given us a reason (laughs) okay so help us with this barrier being trustworthy. We must release that barrier and the barrier of solely relying on family traditions in lieu of seeking a physician. I do both. I believe in science. Why? Omni-science. God is omni-science. Omniscient. Root word. Knowing. Science. All science. Okay, so these two things are not in contradiction to each other. Unfortunately, there are people who are dishonest and don't always tell you the truth around the science that they are experimenting with. So that becomes the issue. This need was brought to the forefront with the C-19 pandemic. I add that healthcare outcomes can also be greatly improved if Black women apply the same discipline to their physical health as many apply to their spiritual health or even their external aesthetics. My words. Okay? Discipline. Prior to the C-19 that derailed group gatherings and fellowships, it was not unusual for many a black woman to be in church practically all day Sunday at choir rehearsal on Tuesday, at Bible study on Wednesday, at prayer meeting on Friday, and at missionary board meetings or passing at tra- out tracks or serving dinners on Saturday. hoo we? somebody don't want to hear this word. <laughs> Hop off now. Hop off now. That schedule happens every week of the year for millions of women. Yet many of those same women would not take one day of the year to get their preventative medical checkup. Now, she is speaking as a doctor. These are her words, not mine. Don't come at me sideways. Come at Melody. Okay? This is what she's saying. This is her experience serving. Pap smear, mammogram, medical checkup. Get into them. On a side note, I'm going to need somebody to invent a better way to do a pap smear. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Jesus the Christ. (laughs) Can somebody please work on that device? Thank you and amen. Okay. If only they would, millions of black women could stop dying from diseases that others increasingly survive. All these factors are causative and many are correctable for many people, but they are not the only factors. We got a little bit more to read and we're going to stop. I know I'm almost over my time here. Societal stress and the rejection connection. A key factor I've identified that plays a role in Black women's health is the stress caused by the constant rejection, disrespect, maligning, and misrepresentation of Black women by the media, advertisers, and some men, even some of our own Black male counterparts. How does one quantify the effect of such constant rejection that it has an effect on women's health, especially those women whose skin is darker than the brown paper bag. She calls it the rejection connection. But does science support her hypothesis? Consider the following. Constant rejection, disrespect, and denigration can all cause stress. Stress causes the release of cortisol and other stress hormones in the body. High cortisol levels lead to high blood pressure, i.e. this also happens when you beat your children. Stroke, diabetes, and central obesity, all of which can lead to death. Prolonged stress also severely affects the immune system, diminishing your ability to fight against life-threatening diseases. Black women have a very high incidence of and death rate from these killer conditions. Hence, connecting the dots is very likely that the widespread social disregard of black women contributes to the state of black women's health in this country and around the world. In a word, one could say it boils down to respect. And I don't know who got the bright idea that only black men want respect, but it really is not true. I think Aretha Franklin kind of spelt it out for us, right? Pun intended. The late comedian Rodney Dangerfield enjoyed a life of fame and fortune and was known for his iconic claim, that's the story of my life, no respect, I don't get no respect at all. Even now, despite the untold number of black women attaining professional heights, there are still many who can make that same claim. But hardly any of them are laughing because a lifetime of no respect is not funny. Disrespect can cause anxiety, emotional pain, and excess stress to the body, mind, and spirit. While some stress is expected, too much unrelenting stress is harmful. Take a look at my societal stress in Black women's flowchart above. Each of the explanations will appear later in this book, but the flow chart clearly demonstrates that there is a major intersection of social factors and social stressors that directly and adversely affect black women's health. What psychological and physical stress do black women experience every day, trying to be accepted, appreciated, valued, and respected in a world that seemingly and without any consciousness of guilt dismisses, ignores, undervalues, misrepresents, and rejects them. The stress of societal rejection can be a killer, literally. My flow chart is one I hope people from all walks of life will get to see. I strongly believe that it visually demonstrates what men, women, the media, educators, doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, and family counselors need to recognize. These social factors slights, and microaggressions are real. They interrelate. They adversely affect the psychological and physical health of Black women everywhere. With that knowledge and awareness, more attention can be paid to help mitigate the social factors and afflicting circumstances that are affecting the lives of Black women. So, let me let you take a look at this if you want to screenshot it. I am going to hold it up here for a few seconds. I'm going to start with um, Facebook and then I'll hold it up for my YouTube watchers as well. So when we come back next time, we're going to start here and um, talk about this chart. I will take a picture of it and I will also post it to Black Table Talk's page. So if you want to download the image, you can. But she talks about things like colorism, things like um, what's coming out of the music community, low marriage stats, being rejected for your natural beauty, um, other black women's misbehaving, Negative media images, the crab barrel mentality or syndrome, and then the constant rejection, disrespect, denigration, and anger directed towards Black women. All of that, she says, is bringing to bear a level of stress. And when that stress comes, cortisol rises, your stress hormone rises, your blood pressure rises, Your risk for diabetes, stroke, obesity rises. Your risk for depression rises. Your immunity goes down. Your endorphins go down. Your self-esteem is lowered. And your emotional pain goes up. These are adverse effects on Black women's health that is directly affecting the death rate of black women. So as strong, as beautiful, as kind, as courageous, as empowering as you are, what she is saying is you got to take time to de-stress. You have to take time to care for yourself. You have to take time to love on yourself. You have to take time to plug into the things that rejuvenate you and bring you life and energy and positivity.